I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest runs a very large Lloyd's business that in the past seven years has perhaps been the poster child for many of the problems in the London market as a whole. This is a previously star business that lost its way. It has had to retrench, contract and remediate to rediscover itself in the past three years. Johan Slabert is the CEO of MS Amlin and has been at the Lloyds Carrier for two years and in the CEO role for 18 months. He's a seasoned executive into his third decade of experience and gives the impression of someone who is a very solid and safe pair of hands. He's also very likeable, very transparent and exudes trustworthiness. Our discussion is very frank and sometimes almost blunt. I find this very healthy and feel lucky that we can have this conversation at all. Now that Emmis Amlin is beginning to emerge from darker times and has posted a profit for the first time in many years, Johan permits himself an occasional glance towards potentially better prospects ahead, but the roots are very firmly planted in the ground. As a consequence, I don't think you'll hear a more honest assessment of the state of the market and the opportunities and challenges it presents anywhere else. Enjoy the podcast. Many of you might have heard of the name Anaplan, but do you know how it's being used in our industry? I'm going to ask Connor Donahoe and Dan Ellis some quick-fire questions. Connor, what is Anaplan? Very simply, Mark, Anaplan is best-in-class cloud-based planning and modelling platform that just so happens to be used by the insurance sector very extensively. And what are we doing when we're we're saying modelling? We're bringing everything together. Is this going to bring all the different parts of the business together that generally sit in silos at the moment. Exactly. What we're trying to do is really break down those barriers between different parts of a business. So, you know, we want finance talking to actuarial teams, talking to HR teams, and give them an environment that can really bring them all together and let them access their data all in one place. So we're in a business that often gets reporting demands upon it really quickly. Can Anaplan help with that? Say, for example, we had COVID and suddenly the finance department will have mm. to start reporting specific COVID-related stuff. No, exactly that point. It's not only the speed at which you can produce the outputs of the report, but that also allows finance teams understand what's driving the numbers. So what we frequently hear from our clients is that without a plan, they don't spend time just preparing and producing the numbers, but they have actually time back now to analyse and understand the drivers. So if suddenly the price of a certain class goes up 40%, you can start planning because, of course, you may want to write a lot more than 40% more of that business because now it's very profitable. But of course, then you have to bring in all the HR and all the other stuff that goes with it. And also the timing of that income that might come in in the future. Exactly. You've got to be able to respond to these real world changes and you've got to do it quickly while putting everyone together. And this comes back to this idea of having one area, one place where all of your different people within the organisation can all access the same shared data and use it all together. And because it's in the cloud, it's easily scalable and everyone can access it and that's how it works. This data exists in organisations today. It just so happens to sit within multiple different spreadsheets that are sitting on people's desktops, sitting in emails, sitting in chats on text messages. The data exists and a plan brings that together and allows everyone to access it. Thanks very much for explaining that. How do we get in touch with you? Very easily. Best way is probably to connect on LinkedIn or you can check out anaplan.com. But to connect on LinkedIn, just search for Connor Donahue Anaplan or Daniel Ellis. And all the links are going to be in the notes. And thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Johan, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Great that you could spend some time with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Obviously, MS Amlin has been in a turnaround situation, but then so is most of the market and most of the Lloyd's market. You just had your annual results out and you're back to profit. 
would you say now that all the remediation work is done? Obviously, it's been quite a long four years. Absolutely not. I think there's still a lot of work for us to do, as you would have seen the results are just in the black. We have two very distinct portfolios. One is the discontinued book and then the continued classes. The continued classes are the ones we'll continue to improve on in terms of profitability. The discontinued classes will decide whether we need to do anything on that in particular, considering that we have made some good reserve increases in 2021 to ensure that we don't need further development in 22. So you kind of is it wrong to say kitchen sink those reserves or you've made sure that you've made a provision that you're pretty certain you won't ever have to make another provision for? Yeah, I think there's some macroeconomic factors that play in there to start off with. For example, inflation on some of the liabilities that are in our discontinued classes, those clearly needed to be adjusted. So in addition to that, we did a RITC on the 1st of January for the UK PNC portfolio. And we learned a few things from that in terms of adequately reserve before you do transactions, I think is a sound thing. So hopefully, we're in a position where we don't need to make further adjustments to that portfolio, at least unless the environment keeps changing around us. And for anyone listening who's not au fait with the abbreviation, um, RATC is reinsurance to close. It's a, a Lloyd's mechanism where you reinsure out your old liabilities. But this was quite an interesting deal, wasn't it? This was a split one. So it's some relatively fresh business, should we say? It was. We stopped writing the UK risks middle of 2020. So some of those binder agreements ran over into 21. So it was not a full year end. It was split in a period. What it did do is not just got us in a better capital position, but it also removed some of the operational drag because that division was built out of an aggregation of smaller businesses and each came with its own operating platform and we never really merged or integrated those businesses. So discontinuing and transferring the data to a third party means we can switch all of that technology off. Now that you've done all this remediation, do you think have you done all the really heavy lifting, the big stuff, saying we're not going to be in this class, we're not going to be in this territory type stuff? We weren't really class specific other than working with Lloyd's on SL10 classes that we had to consider whether we continued or not continue. I think in general, it was looking across all of our lines of business to focus on where we could obtain higher margins and just do better risk selection. Anything that had low margin and you overlay volatility always ends up in a loss scenario. So we wanted to avoid that by looking for the highest possible margins on risks that we really understand. And again, this is on our existing portfolio rather than trying to grow out of a problem. But on the subject of growth, obviously, it's quite a good market still. Rates are still rising. The market overall is profitable. Most people probably agree that there's plenty of rate adequate business to be written. So should we expect a resumption of growth now that you've kind of got your house in order? We are working with um, both our parent and with Lloyd's to ensure that we actually have sustainable profits before we start growing. We have opportunities as our parent starts looking towards the US to become more relevant in that space. We're looking at how we can take advantage of that by directing them towards business that fits with the Lloyd's model. However, Lloyd's and ourselves are being very cautious. We are trying to focus on the profit rather than the growth at this point in time. I think that will come in the future. And kind of culturally, how is the business now? Obviously, you know, it's been through a lot of difficulty and it must be difficult culturally to exit lines of business, you say goodbye to colleagues, etc. Are you sort of feeling that you're resetting the business now, that you're sort of turning a corner? And what sort of a task is that? Yeah, a big task. 
You know, I would say culturally, there's a lot of elements underneath uh, culture, and it's not just the MS Amlin business, but I think the industry. What we're trying to foster here is not yet a culture that's high-performing, but a culture that's collectively contributing. And I say that because contributing is at least getting everybody moving in the same direction. Only then can you go up to the next level and become high-performing. I'm doing a lot of probably excessive communication because I'd like people to stop thinking about messages they receive before this management team started. So it is really about changing the hearts and the minds over a period of time so that everybody understands what their role is and moves forward collectively. And then we can get to the next level of performance, which is really highly effective or efficient teams. In terms of the rest of the organization, I think we've gone through a lot of change over the last few years. As you mentioned, there are other participants in the market that have been um, doing remediation. I think the biggest thing for us is trying to draw a line underneath a lot of the change initiatives that we brought in. People do get change fatigued. I think what we would like to be is a more modern organization to incorporate and embed changes as we move from one year to the next. So we don't freeze all technology developments, all forward-looking strategies and just focus on a day-to-day basis and then have to start remediating again and try and catch up, rather do it integrated as we move forward. So this is sort of like a culture of permanent revolution, that people get used to the fact that things change almost all the time. Absolutely. I don't want to coin a project as a change project. I would like us to adopt new things as we move along. So it's never sort of once and done, never Never Never. done. Just keep going. One of our values is Kaizen, which is always constantly looking to improve. Right. Absolutely. And something where I'm sure you'll be looking for improvements as the boss is on the expense ratio, which is a bit of an outlier when you look at the Lloyd's market, 43%, and then the market average was 35 and a bit in 2021. What are you going to do to get that in line with peers? Obviously, these are always a moving feast, and obviously, you're changing your business mix. I'm sure that will affect it. But love to hear your thoughts on how you're going to get that down in line or better than market average. I think, Mark, I'll maybe just state the obvious. But uh, if we look at a ratio, obviously, it's the expenses versus the earned premium. There's two aspects to that is we've come from a 2.5 billion syndicate to a 1.5 billion syndicate. Yeah. Without changing the operating platform or infrastructure we were operating on. So clearly, we're inefficient from that perspective. We haven't grown the business over the last few years. In fact, we've shrunk. So it just exacerbated that particular ratio. We have, in 2021, reduced our expenses by 45 million pounds. So quantums are quite important. And when we start growing, that will become evident. The uh, 45 million pounds was offset by foreign exchange and financing costs, but that's a step in the right direction. Breaking that ratio down to acquisition cost versus operating expenses... The operating expenses, we are embarking on a multi-year efficiency process whereby any of the non-value-added services that BPOs can provide much better than what we can using different technology for multiple players in the market, I think we can benefit from that. I'm not quite banking on any of the benefits that Lloyd's is identifying in their blueprint too. The second element is acquisition cost. I think going forward, we've changed our reinsurance structure to more of a quota share, which will allow, obviously, for us to pass on some of that acquisition costs through the quota share arrangement. So ultimately, I think both those ratios in conjunction with each other will start shrinking, as well as the growth in the business in future years will help us with that. 
So that's your outwards reinsurance? Our outwards reinsurance, yes. Right. Okay. So that's because you're passing on those acquisition costs. Obviously yeah. you get- Rather than a buying an excess of loss or a, yeah. a retro program. From that, it's right to summarize that you're really focusing on the things that are under your control or as much as possible under your control. And you're not sort of saying a Hail Mary for Lloyd's to come in and fix all the central costs on your behalf. I'm sure you'd like them to, but... uh Absolutely. We would love to reduce our expenses that we pay towards Lloyd's. But I think in addition to that, they're also, I believe, are going to embark on an analysis on acquisition cost. We know that the longer the chain is within that insurance environment, you typically end up with the more participants, the higher the acquisition cost. And Lloyd's has a quirkiness in terms of a Lloyd's broker on top of the producing broker. So there are ways of reducing that. We'll have to figure out what their analysis says at the end of the day to determine how we're going to address that particular point. From a expense efficiency perspective, I think there'll be future decisions and I'm on the LMA. So looking at the real estate question that comes up every time I speak to somebody about what's happening with the Lloyd's building, I think Lloyd's is going through a process today to determine what that should look like and see if there's an opportunity to reduce the expenses there. And we're sitting in a lovely and I'm sure not cheap office here in EC3 in the centre of London, overlooking the Lloyds building and all lots of other insurance-related buildings. Do you think the digitisation of the market and this post-pandemic world that we're finding ourselves in, it's going to bring some savings on real estate? What's your sort of experience yeah. with Hamlin? People back three days a week, that kind of thing, and you probably need 40% less space, I presume. Yeah, we were fortunate enough as the pandemic hit and literally a couple of weeks after I started, we managed to sublease the 45th floor in this building, which... Um, That's the very smart sort of executive suite, I think, at the top. That, that is yes. it. We've also vacated the 19th floor, which was an easy task during the pandemic. We haven't quite formalized what our hybrid solution looks like. In fact, we'll try to coin it MyBrid. And that is really my executive team all have different areas of responsibility. And each of those functions in their responsibility are different. Ideally, I'd like to have as much face-to-face meetings on the underwriting versus the broking side, but probably less on the finance and accounting and, and areas where they don't need to be in the office. Even weekly, you can reduce you know, finance people coming into the office down to probably three or four times a month which will allow us to spread it across five days, not yeah. necessarily everybody in every day, but then reduce another two floors in the building. But you think face-to-face for trading has got to be continued, or were you ambivalent about it? I do think there is you know, good reason to have it. I think we can't go from face-to-face to nothing. Will we need all of the space on the three floors in Lloyd's is a question I think There's definitely a sense that there's an importance of having a floor, especially when you're dealing with international brokers or even policyholders who want to go to Lloyd's and see Lloyd's. You know, a physical presence has still got to be recognized. But I do think we can be more efficient as we move from, you know, a post-COVID to a real hybrid environment. Yeah, it must be difficult. I find it difficult to be hybrid. I was trying to do a podcast half in person and then someone was on Zoom and it was almost impossible. I thought there should be one out, all out. I suddenly realised, do you ever get that feeling with hybrid? Is sort of, is it worse of both worlds? It's definitely the most asked question these days is, can you hear me? Are you on mute? Yeah. Or, you know? It could be the best of both worlds or it could be the worst, but I don't know. Look, I, if I look at how that's affecting or should affect or will affect the insurance industry is 
the more hybrid or more remote working, the bigger the cyber exposure, the bigger need for cyber insurance. So that's probably one of the classes as gig industries take a simple example of you know, retailers are now bypassing warehouses. They go straight from the manufacturer to the online orders. So that should, in fact, make things cheaper. That moves the risk from a physical location to a supply chain risk. So that's going to drive some of the evolution in our product range as well. Obviously, now you're looking tentatively to growth, or at least you've done the heavy lifting on the remediation, tentatively looking to grow. And as you look around, where are the best places you can see growth? It sounds like cyber. Are you keen on cyber? Or Obviously, that's had enormous market remediation. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say we're keen on it. And I only say that, you know, we'll recognize that it is a, you have to be in that space in the future. Yeah. But I don't believe we currently have the skill sets available. So we're definitely looking at that in the future. I think more immediately, our parent has a broader desire to access the U.S. market appropriately. We have across four different balance sheets about $3 billion of premium, which is a draw. It's 0.04 of the U.S. market. So for them, that's an opportunity to access the U.S. market in a bigger way. We will ultimately be looking at those targets and see if there's opportunity for us. Clearly, you know, high volume consumer type of business doesn't naturally fit with the Lloyd's environment, but we will help steer them towards portfolios that fit with our underwriting criteria and our risk selection. And does that mean, would you have to have boots on the ground in the US? Would you be looking to build a network of local offices? Yeah, look, as I said, it's the parents' desire to expand in that space. We currently write a substantial amount, about 60% of our portfolio is US risks. But I think the question really is, should we have 100% of our expense base in sterling and 60% of our premium in dollars? Yeah, I think that's a slightly different question. I think it's an opportunity to consider how do we match our expenses to our premium income? Because a year like last year cost us a substantial amount of premium because the rate at 1.1 was substantially different yes. throughout the year. So I think that's the one consideration. Second one is proximity. I think the Lloyd's market is no longer receiving the nicely packaged risks from around the world. I think the Lloyd's market is now truly dealing with the hard-to-place, complicated risks that has not already been picked apart by the larger U.S. carriers who now have the appetite, have the skill, have the capital, and understand the excess and surplus liability lines much better than what they used to. Do you think it ever really did uh, when I was a broker? I certainly didn't feel that Lloyd's got all the nice vanilla business. Certainly not out of Spain, it didn't when I was a broker. (laughs) I think there was a time when Lloyd's was, you know, the renowned carrier or market to place your business in. I think over the years it's reduced and it's all areas around the world. As Asia developed and the penetration improved and the brokers started justifying their existence in those countries, they've been placing more business in those countries rather than sending it out to Lloyd's as a matter of fact. So I think we're in a different environment. And if we don't stop bringing risks into Lloyd's by having better proximity to those risks and bringing it here, I don't think we're going to get a lot of opportunity to just grow as the market grows. But long term, are you optimistic that obviously everything gets commoditized? And I suppose the very first motor risk in 1880, whenever it was, you know, was a really cutting edge risk at the time. It was like, goodness me, these motor cars will explode. And obviously, there were aeroplanes at the beginning of the 20th century as well. 
And then now they become, they do eventually over time become commoditized. You couldn't have a more commoditized risk than the motor really these days. So do you think that it's just a natural tendency of things? And of course, but the world is creating new difficult risks and throwing them up all the time. And therefore Lloyd is always going to have that place at the table, like for example, with cyber. Yeah, and it's an interesting question, Mark. So, you know, I sort of compare that with a navigation system. If we all use the same navigation system, i.e. an automated rating capability, we're all going to be on the same path. We're going to be on the same road. Mm. I think differentiation is really going to be the thing that wins at the end of the day. And, you know, if I look at insure tech companies, it's very hard to develop an insure tech capability and tack it on. It's really about replacing, not adding on, because then you're not even becoming cost efficient. So if you can use technology and the new data, I call it new data, which is driven by applications, by technology systems, that allows you to differentiate or break down risk into smaller categories and price it differently, I think that's what's going to win at the end of the day. That's interesting. I was wondering, yes, MS Amlin, what's your relationship been with InsureTech? We've had this kind of boom over the last five years, a huge amount of investment. And what's been your attitude to it? I think we recognize it. Have we ventured into it? No, because we've had other priorities, as you can imagine. But I think the time's right. I think we need to, and particularly around our own data, we have a lot of underwriting. We've got 118 years at Lloyd's. And we have a lot of data on risks that have expired or are in force. But I think if we can enhance that with new data that's coming out that are being generated by third party or by technology to really improve our understanding of risk, I think that's where we're going to gain rather than going after investing into insure tech businesses that add services or add claims capability or add any of those. So your attitude is to be more a partner to these businesses that are going to produce new tools and clever, I make your underwriters more efficient, make them more accurate. Yeah, I'll give you an example of how that really could work. If you look at, I'm going to use probably the most used example, a Uber vehicle, that vehicle's owned by a private individual, but it probably has five distinct risks that in the past, it was all just one liability policy. Mm-hmm. You can now break that liability down into five categories because you have an app in that vehicle. You know where that car is parked overnight, and typically in the US, it's either on a driveway or in the street. That's two different risks. You have that data because you have GPS. The second category is the owner of the vehicle using it for private purposes, driving on his own. That liability is smaller than the owner with his entire family in that vehicle. The fourth category then is when the application is switched on and the driver now works for Uber, but he hasn't yet picked up a passenger. Again, you have that data because the Uber app tells you that. And then when you've picked up your passenger, you've got a fifth element. And today we sell a single liability policy. In the future, that could potentially be five different policies, differently priced for different purposes. Wow. And of course, the technology will enable you to process all of those accurately and you know, almost by the minute, I presume. Indeed. What about, we've had other initiatives in the Lloyd's market in algorithmic underwriting and automatic or semi-automatic underwriting. Is that something you're interested in? I presume you must have looked at it. Yeah, you know, there are examples of that already in the market where, you know, simple criteria can drive a standard pricing. I think for anybody who's a pure follow market, if they know who they want to follow and at what limits they want to follow, it's an easy way to do it. I think you still need all the other criteria in terms of uh, functions within the uh, insurance environment. 
there will be players who try and find the opportunities and I think it's not going to be your vanilla products because there's very little margin in your vanilla products so they're going to go look for areas where they can automatically underwrite based on data and criteria that they have available. But I'm presuming from your answer that this isn't for you. You want to be a lead underwriter, I presume, and control your own terms. I think lead is important in some classes, not necessarily all classes. And I think it's about the relationship with the brokers and relationship with the policyholders as well, rather than just automating underwriting. What's the vision for that? Do you think that at some point, though, when you have this semi-automatic follow market where you're almost sitting like a fund manager, just dialing up and down your appetites and seeing how your underwriting is doing almost in real time, almost like a day trader, you're sitting there pressing buttons rather than underwriting. Is that the ultimate commodity? Is that a business that can only ever run at 99% combined and never, it will never do any better or any worse? I mean, that's a good question. We, I mean, it would become a very low margin business and obviously it will suit a certain type of capital provider that wants something slow and steady. I mean, isn't that what ILSs and sidecars do, right? They selective on which risks they want to participate and they're not seeking to underwrite every account. It's can I get 2 or 3% incremental income to enhance my investment income, which is what funds that ILS or uh, sidecar. I think there will be people with those type of models and there'll be people who seek out real opportunity and opportunistic underwriting with larger margins. And they'll get it right and some will get it wrong. That's just the nature of the volatility in our business. And to clarify, you see yourself more as being more of the manual, uh, smart underwriter, the one looking for the high margin, difficult risk. Yeah, I think we'll move in that direction. Will we ultimately just be automated? I doubt that because there is the art and the science in underwriting. The science is really just the mechanism and the automation and getting to a point. The art is that gut feel, is this the right risk? Is there anything else we haven't considered that the system or the technology hasn't told us? I should go back to the question I asked you about the market because I don't think we actually ended up addressing it. Any other good spots that you see in the market in either byline or territory that you think are particularly attractive? We haven't been focused on growth. So, you know, I wouldn't pick any particular classes out to say this is where I expect the obvious macroeconomic factors are telling us cyber will continue to grow and grow. So if we get that pricing right, that is an opportunity. I think on the flip side to that, I think there's a lot of consideration around ESG and how climate change could potentially create opportunities for future risks. And I think going into renewable green energy sources, I think there'll be growth in that area as we start moving towards a net zero by 2050. So I think it's a longer term play. It's not, you know, we're going out tomorrow for 22 or 23 to target pockets of business. I think if you know where to participate, and when I say where, it's where in the layers and geographically where the risk is better for a particular class. I think you already make progress. Yes, it'd be interesting to talk about ESG. How do you see it seem almost because it's a macroeconomic system that is obviously penalizing carbon and making green energy more attractive and green practices more attractive. You see that in green finance, that it's practically free money at the moment. If you raise a green bond and everyone has to buy it and one wonders whether those investments are going to be profitable. And do you think there might be a similar opportunity to lose lots of money <laughs> in green insurance, which would look very good on your annual report, but it might not look so good on the combined ratio? Yeah, I think it's an evolution, really. There are some of the renewable energy sources that are really good, and we already do a lot of that on our energy portfolio. I think there will be new sources coming out. You know, I think 
At the end of the day, the green bonds are, as you say, likely to be filled with failed opportunities. I don't think every idea that's being financed out there, it's a bit like the insurtech space, 2% successful, 98% fail. You know, I think in the early days, that's going to be the case. And then at a turning point in time, I think when those real capabilities start emerging in a green environment, I think it'd be a lot more successful then. And what's your attitude to, obviously, it's getting harder and harder to ensure some carbon-based heavy industry. How do you manage that transition? It must be quite difficult that you've got clients that need insurance now and that we also need their product. We need their energy. Absolutely. Largely. How do you sort of build that transition into your own thinking and obviously your own risk management? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. We are uh, at the point where we're considering how to measure the progress or direction that our policyholders are going in. Clearly, there'll be a lot of pressure on those clients who are in that space, in the energy and the non-green space, to start converting. And what we'd like to do is develop a scorecard that can evolve as well. So, you know, what are your considerations? Where are you going in the next few years? So we know they're on a path to 2050 and we can score them on that basis and keep track as they progress through that. And they do the things that they've got to keep their promises. You know, you say you're 59 now, but you've got to be 47 by this time next year. Absolutely. And, you know, you hit on a point there that a substantial amount of, you know, the poorer countries are so dependent on coal, for example, to provide energy. So um, you can't drop the S in the ESG because you have a responsibility to society. There's also the economic factors around that. I guess the last man standing in that space is going to be demanding price. If everybody's decided, well, we're going to stop underwriting mines and coal mines and those type of risks. There's some interesting hedge funds or sort of presumably high net worth backed funds that are probably going to make a lot of money. It would be a short opportunity that obviously by 2050, one would hope that it's all over. But let's say that the traditional market might have to turn our backs on some of that business, one presume. Yeah, there's a lot of, con- well, I shouldn't say concerns, but questions around what happens when we are all net zero or zero net. The question is, have we ever been? Does that have a knock-on impact on the ecology? Have we thought this through? Oh, that's a good thing. We might create a new, obviously, we'll solve one problem and then, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, one presumes. Well, we won't know. I suppose we won't know let's, until let's we cross get... that bridge Indeed. first. Let's get to 2050 and stop the world from heating up too much. And then we might not be here. Yes, we're planning on being around, but yes, we might not be. Um, we'll probably be retired at the very least, Indeed. if not deceased. <laughs> Obviously, you mentioned about ESG and the S part. At Lloyd's, we've had an interesting I and mean, a difficult sort of cultural reckoning of the last three or four years. And obviously, there was a recent sanction of a Lloyd's managing agent over some, again, cultural issues. Does that tell us that we've still got a long way to go on this? Because we started this journey in earnest probably three or four years ago. I do believe we have a long way to go. And it is, I think it stems from the makeup of still today, you know, the population within the industry, not necessarily a particular syndicate. I think behaviors need to change. I think when we look at diversity and inclusion, which I think will be a substantial change to that culture, that's not going to happen overnight. I think all of us are trying to get to a uh, reflect a better scorecard, but we're all targeting the same people because the regulators expect us to have senior people with experience. That means you can't go outside of the industry and try and hire those people. From our perspective, we recognize it's not going to happen overnight. So what are we doing about it? I think our apprenticeship and our graduate scheme, 
are 100% focused on females and ethnic minority groups. So if we do that, 10 of the largest syndicates or London market carriers do the same thing. We've got a much lower probability of losing those people when they get to graduate from those programs, because otherwise, if we don't all do that, they're just going to get picked off. So I think we have a responsibility of bringing people into the market and naturally fixing it, not forcing it. Yep. But it's a generational thing. It's almost like a 2050 that at some point this intake from the last few years is only going to be maturing and only going to be running businesses and being on boards in 20, 30 years time. If the top 10 each day, that's 100 people that we could potentially bring into the market that are diverse. If we do it three years in a row, that's 300 people and it starts to snowball. Yeah. Well, everyone can do things. And so would you think that we're having an interesting engagement with the regulator at the moment in this post-Brexit world in the UK with the UK regulator and seem to be an open door and people are listening and we've got some good people lobbying on the industry's behalf. Do you think that should be something we should be asking for to say, well, we've got diversity and inclusion objectives and yet they're contradicting with the fact that you need minimum 25 years experience to be on a board or to be a senior manager under the regime. Perhaps we could ask the regulator to say, well, if it were someone, you know, if it was going to improve diversity and inclusion, perhaps we could allow someone from those backgrounds, let them off a bit, allow them in with slightly less experience. I think it does create a bit of a dilemma because, you know, the supervisory team versus the enforcement team, if supervisory allows for it, then enforcement's got to blame supervisory. So I think it does create a bit of a dilemma. However, I do believe that there is an opportunity because there's a substantial amount of people who could technically qualify as non-executive directors to engage in a, call it a shadow role, whereby they take somebody for two years through that senior process, here are the things to consider, this is how you look at certain things, to give them that experience, to sort of accelerate them through to get to approval of an SMF position. So you'd be in favor of something that uh, yeah. regime that helps accelerate that because yeah. it'll help us get to this good place quicker. Yeah. And do you think in terms of behavior, once we get a better balance, do you think that will improve behavior? Of course, I presume there's always going to be bad behavior, isn't there? I mean, you know, there's always baddies in every film. So Absolutely. But I think the generation of people that we're bringing in think about life differently. So besides the fact that we'll bring more diverse people in, I think as we move in the next three, four, five years, a lot of those, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, bad apples with bad behavior are probably going to start moving out of the industry, you know, as we bring people in. See, something we're all talking about, Johan, is inflation. We haven't seen inflation like this since we were much younger. How important is that in the underwriting mix at the moment, just getting the call on inflation right? And obviously, and on your reserving, of course. Yeah, we're faced with this at the end of last year as the inflation rate in the US started spiking and inflation in twofold. It's the social inflation and then regular CPI. I think the consensus by the economists at this point in time is that most of the developed countries are going to target roughly 2% as a long-term inflation rate. However, most of them recognize that due to the initial disruption in the supply chain, the COVID cause, And now the secondary one, as a result of the war in Ukraine, I think is going to potentially exacerbate that impact. We might see double digits in the US, but most of the countries have said they will target something around about the 2 to 3%. So it's just a matter of duration and how effective those fiscal policies are 
to bring it back down. And is the market going to allow you to price for this at the moment? I think we will see some further rate increases to counter that. Whether we'll be able to do it next year if it continues, I think will be a challenge. We are seeing that rate curve flattening again. It has started to come down. Inflation will be an impact on that. To what extent? You know, it's the magic question. It's that risk versus reward equation. And brokers and policyholders seeking their reward is a lower premium. And the reinsurers at the end of the chain are seeking their reward, which is higher rate. And that's irrespective of what your pricing models say. It's just how the market operates. One last question about the market. Obviously, you're known as a reinsurance specialist. Obviously, you do everything else, but you've always been one of your core areas of expertise. We're coming up to the mid-year renewals, and there's obviously been so much debate about natural catastrophe and secondary perils. Do you think, is the market going to allow everyone to reprice in the way that they want to? We already saw on the 1st of January challenges on the 1-1 renewals, you know, for primarily the US uh, natural cat perils. And that was, if my understanding is correct from my conversations with the reinsurers, it's about the consideration for climate change and whether what we've seen up to now is driven by climate change or is that still really coming? Yep. And compound that with is it an appropriate or adequate rate? And I think that made a lot of reinsurers a bit hesitant to commit to capacity or lines. I think that's going to really play on everybody's minds as we go forward. Will we have the ability to keep um, pricing for it? I think there's an optimal level if you're a policyholder on the eastern seaboard becomes unaffordable. Yeah. If it's unaffordable, the real liability ultimate or cost of events ends up on FEMA. That means the government has to step in. If the government steps in to the full extent of coverage, then insurance becomes less important. So we don't want to, you know, displace ourselves with a government solution. Yeah. But I think if we look at what's happening in Florida and the politicians now saying that there's an urgent need to reform the Florida in particular, you know, laws around or requirements around insurance on uh, natural catastrophes, I think there is definitely an opportunity to speak to governments, to talk to them and figure out where and how insurers versus the governments, governments can and should participate on these exposures. Reset and get something that's equitable for everybody. Yep. And of course, there's no shortage of capital in the reinsurance market. It seems to be, there's been a lack of will to write at the old prices and it's not been a shortage of capacity that's driven up pricing, has it? Yeah. No, it, there is capital in the market. There's no doubt. You know, some of the other questions that we should be asking is the sidecar arrangements for the ILSs. They've been at the brunt of the losses over the years since 2017. There's yep. a lot of trapped capital. Is that shifting from there into traditional reinsurance to diversify? You know, I think it's interesting. And of course, the biggest impact on U.S. balance sheets in particular since the financial crisis is everybody's got more cash, more liquidity, and everybody needs to put that to use. A lot of that has ended up in the insurance space, but there's a requirement of an incremental return. And if the volatility takes that return away, will that liquid it or will that capital be fungible? So we'll have to wait and see. We just don't know, but you kind of you hope for the best, but preparing for the worst. That's always, that's always <laughs> the motto when you're in insurance. <laughs> Well, Johan, thank you so much for giving up your time. I wish you all the best with your continued endeavours at MS Amlin, and I hope you come back on the programme soon. Come out and speak to us again. Thank you, Mark, for taking time to speak to us. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. 
Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>